0: In 1939, in a small recording studio in Johannesburg, South Africa, a man named Solomon Linda created the most famous melody that has ever come out of Africa, and arguably one of the most famous melodies in the world. It has been featured in nearly 200 recordings, dozens of commercials and movies, and has made many people and many corporations extremely rich. You have never heard of Solomon Linda. He died of kidney failure in abject poverty, and a gravestone wasn't put on his grave until 18 years after he was buried. This is the story of that man, but even more, this is the story of that melody. This is Ear Buddies. Hello and welcome once again to another episode of Ear Buddies. A very special episode, if I do say so myself. Um, As you can tell, our good buddy Tim is not here. Um, He doesn't need to explain himself. He doesn't owe you that, okay? Um, He doesn't owe me that. I have no idea where he is. I'm sure he's okay, but he's on his own journey. And I'm taking over this week, just me, just Maddie on the mic. And why is this episode so special? Great question, as always. Um, as you can probably tell from that well-written and well-performed um, prestige podcast type intro that you just heard, um, things are going things to are be a little bit different this week. I... Want to tell you a story? That's what I want to do. No ad break. No um, no segments. No fun banter. Um, not not the usual Ear Buddies app. It's a very special episode. Um, here's here's why. I as as many of you, I'm sure know. I am a a scholar. Yeah, I'm a, and I'm a real musician and as both of those things, my interest I I'm sure it has become clear over the past nearly 50 episodes, but my interest really lies in um things like intellectual property rights, um songwriters rights, um colonialism, exploitation, class, race, economic inequality. Um, and as it happens, in my studies, I, I came across the story I'm about to tell you, which is about all of those things that I just mentioned, just absolute bait for the Ear Buddies crowd. And I thought, you know, if I'm so fascinated by this story, I bet that the army would also be fascinated. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to share it with you, and I, because this is about, um, intellectual property and, and credit where it's due, I find it, uh, important to say that I did not do the legwork really here on, on this research. Um, this is a story that has been told before, and certainly in, in, uh, a more comprehensive and better way than on a simple, humble podcast. Um, so I, I want to give credit, firstly, to everyone else who has actually put in the work here, because what I did was found uh, several articles and several long-form pieces and clipped through some links and read a lot of stuff. But I didn't really do, you know, the, the field work. Um, so that's, that's my disclaimer. This is a retelling, not so much a telling. Um, that being said, um, let's, let's dive in, and I, I hope that you will enjoy learning about this as, as much as I did. Solomon Linda was born in 1909 in Ladysmith, South Africa. Uh, he was a member of the Zulu tribe. And he moved to Johannesburg in his 20s to, you know, seek his, his fortune in the big city. He got a job and started a an a cappella group with um, some of his friends called the Evening Birds. And pretty quickly became a popular act in Johannesburg. They would uh, dress up in pinstripe suits and bowler hats and uh, were, by all accounts, just a very... Cool urban act, and he and the Evening Birds made a quite a splash in Johannesburg by essentially inventing a new genre of music called Isicathamiya, which I am pronouncing kind of right. Um, and this this genre was um, different in that. Um, Well, it was an a cappella style, right? So it was just vocals. But rather than the standard choral arrangements, they had three to four people singing the bass parts rather than the traditional one. And the lead uh, vocal, which was Solomon, he was the the lead singer, um, was a very, very high falsetto, um, which sort of gave a a female vocal texture to an all-male group. And... Uh, this was very cool. This, this excited a lot of people. And the Solomon, Linda, and the Evening Birds became a, a, you know, a very popular act to the point where they were noticed by a talent scout who brought them to what was at the time the only recording studio in sub-Saharan Africa. And this studio was owned by a guy named Eric Gallo, which is a name that will come up again later. So in 1939, uh, they all get into the studio. They've got a few songs they want to record, um, and they come up with this song that they had worked on a bit, but not completely finished. And the name of that song is called Mbube. Let's uh, let's take a listen. <laughs> Almost nobody has heard that song, but you probably already know the melody to which I am referring, the melody that this story is about. What's fascinating to me is that, A, this melody was completely improvised, right? The song wasn't finished, uh, even as they were recording it, um, because that's sort of how that style of music was often done. Um, But also that, only shows up, right, the melody, the melody that we're, uh, we're focused on, only shows up at the very end of this track, and only once. Uh, but when you hear it, um, I mean, you'll know it when you hear it. So Solomon left the studio that day with 10 shillings, 10 shillings in his pocket, which is less than two American dollars. Less than two American dollars. Um, and that was that. The session was over. The song was on tape. And Eric Gallo decided to, uh, to press it, to release the song. And you know what? The song actually did uh, very well. It had sold around 100,000 copies by the late 40s, and Solomon uh, was famous in his community and uh, a star uh, among the, the Zulu people in that region because still, even though it had sold uh, that many copies, it still hadn't broken out of South Africa. And to be honest, there was no way it was ever going to break out of South Africa um, in its in its current form. I mean, this is African music sung in Zulu. It's a it's a strange genre to anyone who's not part of that community. Uh so Solomon was happy. I mean that that was the the best thing that could have happened in his mind. I mean he was he was a success. But then it did break out of South Africa in a very interesting way. I'm gonna drop another name on you guys, Alan Lomax. Alan Lomax uh, is now recognized as the godfather of sorts of world music, and you know here at Earbuddies, we love world music, and uh, we love we love Alan Lomax because his life's work was finding, um, and making field recordings of, um, different cultures, musical styles. He recorded a lot of, uh, a lot of music in black America, in rural America, and he was always keeping his ear to the ground to find genres, um, and recordings from different countries, and from different people. That was his, his passion. That was his life's work. Alan worked at Decca Records, which was the record label back in the day. They were, uh, just a monolith. And he, um, got a shipment of records from, from Africa. He was, he'd sort of rescued them because, uh, he heard things in them that he really thought were, were worth saving and worth, um, trying to get a modern contemporary artist to record. And he sent a bunch of them to a gentleman by the name of Pete Seeger. Now I know I'm throwing a lot of names at you, but this is a story. That's how it goes. Try and keep up. Do your best. Pete Seeger was a folk musician. He was friends with Bob Dylan. He was a member of a band called The Weavers. He made the banjo a famous uh, folk music instrument in America. Um, Sort of an influential guy in the Greenwich Village, New York, folk protest music scene, as it were. And Pete uh, was friends with Alan. And Alan heard these these records and thought, I bet Pete and the Weavers could do something with some of these. Alan himself hadn't really um chosen exactly which which of the songs um would work, but you know, he trusted Pete to to find something worthwhile in in this stack of seventy-eight RPMs. And as it happened, Pete did indeed find something worthwhile, uh, specifically with, of course, the song Mbuebe. Um, he picked this one up, listened to it, and was really taken with the melody, had no idea, of course, what the lyrics were, and, uh, well, <laughs> what they're actually saying in in this song, the Zulu is Uimbuebe, and it means, translated literally, you are a lion, right? So the lyrics of the song are basically, you are a lion, but Pete had no way of knowing that And he heard it as some sort of word That maybe was away. And uh, so he wrote that down He's, He said, I guess that's, uh, that's what we're going to call this song And he learned it, arranged it And taught it to his friends, the Weavers Soon after this, the Weavers were signed to Decca Records. And they got a little bit of fame um, with a couple early singles that all seemed to hit the right spot in the American listening public. And they were climbing the charts. They were playing cool venues. They were going on TV. And then they released Wim Away, which also did very well. People connected to the music and Uh, I guess, the nonsense lyrics, and it shot up the charts. The Weavers were absolutely going places. But if you've paid attention in your American history classes like I did, you will know that something was happening in America uh, in the 50s, and that thing was called McCarthyism. The Red Scare, the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee, right? Remember those those phrases? Because uh, they're coming back in a big way here for, for Pete and the Weavers. The House Un-American Activities Committee was uh, on the hunt for Reds, for Commies, for Socialists. And Pete and the Weavers, well... They absolutely were socialists and not really making much of an effort to hide it. So they got found out. They got blacklisted. And again, to, to recap our, our history class, we all know what happened when you got blacklisted for being a commie in the 50s. Um, radio stations banned Weaver's Records their tv appearances were all canceled they stopped playing at uh fancy nightclubs they wim away was at uh number six and it dropped all the way down the charts into nothing like nobody would talk to them and then uh deca dropped them too they lost it all but of course uh that is nowhere near the end of the story About 10 years later, in 1961, a little doo-wop group called The Tokens was on their way to stardom, or something like that. They were doing all right. They had a couple songs uh, on the charts, and they were looking for something even better. And their lead singer, Jay, Jay Siegel, he uh, remembered this song, from years back uh, from an old weavers album and thought you know why not why not cover this this is a cool a cool tune and of course the song was whim away so he brought it to the band's producers and pitched it and the producers said jay folks boys fellas this sounds good but it's nonsense like what what are these words? I we no one is going to listen to a song like this that means nothing. And so what they did was they gave it to another name. This name is George David Weiss. This guy had co-written "Can't Help Falling in Love" uh, for Elvis Presley and had some had some chops. Definitely some chops indeed. Uh, and it was his job to turn this song into something a little more palatable for the American public. Not sure why. I mean, it had been doing really well 10 years ago, but I suppose during the doo-wop trend, they wanted it to be a little bit more uh, intelligible. Right. So, George, clever little devil that he is, he takes apart the song and puts it back together. And... What's interesting about this is that Wimoway, the Weaver's version, was actually pretty faithful to Solomon, Linda, and the Evening Birds' original version. Um, Not much was was changed, actually. But this new one for the tokens that George was working on, um, it had a new title, The Lion Sleeps Tonight. And it had new lyrics new english lyrics and most importantly at least in my view is that little melody at the very end of the uh the two other versions that was now front and center in the jungle the mighty jungle the lion sleeps tonight <laughs> So George takes it to the tokens, shows the the producers, and everyone says, fine, I guess. The tokens hated the lyrics, uh, which, (laughs) actually, I get that. It's kind of funny because, uh, I suppose, credit to, to George for maintaining sort of some spiritual through line there like he could have rewritten the lyrics to be about anything but he kept the lion vibe right and the tokens hated that they were teenagers and they were like this is this is just as stupid as the original version if not stupider and uh, the the producers did the final mix over the phone and then they put it RCA which was uh, another massive label but RCA uh, put the song The Lion Sleeps Tonight as the B-side of another song called Tina, right? Because let's remember back in the day the A-side was the main song the single and on the B-side was just some some filler, right? Just fluff. And uh, Tina did terribly. Nobody cared. Uh, The song was clearly going nowhere. But as fate would have it uh, some DJ in, at some radio station in Massachusetts Flipped it over, flipped over Tina And saw the Lion Sleeps Tonight Gave it a spin and said Wow, now this is something else And so he uh, puts it in heavy rotation on his, on his station People start hearing it It breaks out regionally Hits the national charts And then goes number one What a mitzvah for the tokens And for RCA and for George David Weiss And then it just went supernova. There was a cover version uh, in England that also went number one. Uh, It was topping charts all around the world, almost, at least in the the Western world. Everyone knew it. It was an earworm, and it was catchy as heck. Brian Wilson, who uh, longtime fans may remember as the founding genius of the Beach Boys, uh, apparently when he heard the lion sleeps tonight on the radio in his car. He was so overwhelmed that he had to pull over to the side of the road to, to process it. It blew his mind just so hard. And then it, it just kept going. Like it just kept going. It was in everything. Everyone was doing covers of it. Uh, it became, you know, the song. Well, one of many good songs, uh, in the lion King. And then it got into the, the, uh, play of, of the lion King. Um, It's on all kinds of uh, CDs and compilations. And basically, everybody in the world knows this song and knows this melody. The expert estimates are that just from uh, placement in the Lion uh, King-related IP, this song has earned at least 15 million dollars and again that's just from the Lion King stuff uh, who knows how much it's made beyond that and Solomon Linda walked out of that uh, that session with less than two American dollars in his pocket so of course here's where things get interesting in 1939 and of course things were very different in the music industry than they are today. Uh, people didn't get royalties. Um, no one copyrighted anything. Uh, Solomon Linda didn't get a contract. He got his 10 shillings. And, uh, then the music, that song belonged to Gallo records, right? Uh, Eric Gallo's company. And when it became a, a hit locally, that money went to Eric Gallo and, uh, That was it. But then when Mbuebe turned into Wimoway, which was the hit for the Weavers, uh, Gallo did something very stupid. Um, He could have made millions, but he just did a handshake deal to give the rights to this song to the Richmond organization, which was a massive uh, music publisher, and then... Uh, At that point, he had no control over it, uh, and, of course, Solomon Linda had never had control over it, and something sort of fascinating happened. Two of the gentlemen who worked at the Richmond organization as song publishers um, were named Howie Richmond and his buddy Albert Brackman, and these two fellas had a really interesting uh, method of operation. What they would do is they would copyright old folk songs that belong to nobody, essentially. Um, Which is actually, well, it's legal, folks, it is legal. uh, And it's brilliant if you think about it, because there are a lot of uh, public domain songs that Nobody technically owns, no one knows where they came from. They're just out there in the ether, and it's impossible to trace any ownership. And what what these guys would do, old, old Howie and uh, old Albert, they would find these songs, and uh, under a pseudonym, right, they, they both had a couple fake names that they would use, and register and copyright songs, old folk songs, under these names. So the Solomon Linda tune wasn't technically in the public domain, but it was uh, uncopyrighted and it was owned by uh, a foreign label that no one had heard of and that clearly didn't care about uh, protecting Solomon Linda's rights or his intellectual property. They didn't even really consider it his intellectual property. So of course, easiest thing in the world is to snap that up and put a fake name on it and then they... Uh, the Richmond organization, Howie and Albert, they would get the royalties forever. Great idea, boys. What's also very interesting is that the Weavers uh, had a ton of songs like this, right? They were a folk group, and they played a lot of songs that were f- written by nobody, right? Just old old songs that no one had, uh, had any claim to. However... Pete Seeger, good socialist that he was, uh, was upset by this, by this choice that the Richmond organization had made, uh, because he knew where the song had come from, right? He knew, he had heard the original recording and and knew it was from Solomon, Linda, and the Evening Birds. And so he was like, well, obviously, uh, he needs to get some sort of money here on the back end, because he wrote it. Uh, So... That was his uh, his campaign. He was asking his publisher to try to pay Solomon Linda, and apparently, according to Pete, he thought that this was happening. He thought that Solomon was getting paid. Solomon was not getting paid. Let's uh, let's keep stacking interesting facts on top of interesting facts here. The story continues. Um, so. We know that the uh, that Wimoway was turned into the Lion sleeps tonight, right? And that was by the Tokens, who are on RCA. Uh, that's their label, and their producers were two guys who knew how the game was played before they set about producing the Lion sleeps tonight for the tokens, they did their research, they did their due diligence, and they noted that this was the, the WIMAway, the, the version by the Weavers, was written by a guy named Paul Campbell. Looked into that, guess what? Paul Campbell, not a real guy. It is an alias uh, of our friends Howard and Albert. And what they did is they, they looked further into Paul Campbell's work and knew that this was an alias, because all of Paul Campbell's work was old, old folk songs. So what they did, clearly, is assumed that Wimoway was just some kind of old African folk song. Didn't belong to anybody, right? So it's theirs, they can have it, and they were allowed, they thought they were allowed to turn this into The Lion Sleeps Tonight without any repercussions, but, of course, there were repercussions. Because Howie Richmond, again, this is the guy who works at uh, the Richmond organization, big music publisher, he heard The Lion Sleeps Tonight after it was released, and he immediately recognized that melody, the melody we're talking about. Uh, because that is the melody from "Wimoway" by The Weavers, and it's also the melody, of course, from Mbuebe by Solomon Linda and The Evening Birds. So if we can go back uh, briefly in our, in our mind palaces here, and remember Eric Gallo, right? He was the guy who owned that studio. He actually had taken out a copyright years later on the Solomon Linder recording, but then he traded it to the Richmond organization, right? So now the Richmond organization owned the copyright to this song. And hey, guys, you can't record a song Uh, if you don't have the copyright, even if it is uh, an interpolation or a remix. So what uh, RCA and the Tokens had done was, in fact, illegal. They didn't know it, but it was illegal because Howie Richmond and the Richmond organization, they owned the copyright, and they weren't going to let this one go without a fight. I'm just kidding. It wasn't a fight. These people on both sides—the Richmond organization and the RCA-affiliated, the Lion Sleeps Tonight producers and writer—they uh, all knew each other. They were all buddies, big, you know, fat cats at the top of the industry, and they just wanted to settle this uh, because the song was still climbing. Uh, it went, it was going, it was about to go number one, and they wanted to sort all this out so everybody got paid. Well, everybody except for Solomon Linda. So uh, they, they figured it out. They gave um, 50% of the publishing rights to the Richmond organization, and then the three RCA writers and producers got uh, 100% of the writers' royalties. Done and dusted, problem solved. Roughly two years after this, Solomon Linda died of kidney failure in Johannesburg with uh, almost no money to his name. But this is still not quite the end of the story because time, as we know, continues to pass. And the thing about time passing is that copyrights expire. And in 1989, just as Taylor Swift was about to be born, the copyright for The Lion Sleeps Tonight was about to expire. And things were still Things were still about to get interesting because what happened in 1989 was uh, the Richmond Organization boys, Howie and Al, they were notified that George David Weiss and the RCA people uh, were going to stop publishing The Lion Sleeps Tonight through the Richmond Organization unless the Richmond Organization gave them a bunch of money. Uh, This is legal. Right, this, it's. I mean, this. This is all legal. Everything that's happening is technically fine. Uh, and so they told uh, George Weiss, you know, told Howie and Al that unless they were paid a bunch of money, they were going to go through a new publisher, which would completely cut out the Richmond organization. Of course, Howie and Al cannot cannot stand for this, and so they took the thing to court. Uh, I am not going to attempt to uh, untangle all the legalese and everything uh, that w- happened uh, with this. But the important uh, the important aspect as concerns this story is that in this argument, I mean, this is an argument over song ownership, right? And it's between two groups of rich men uh, who did not, have anything to do... Well, that's not fair. Who did not actually write the original melody, right? They're fighting over something that, do, that doesn't actually belong to either of them, and they both know how much money it is, it has made and is making and is going to make because in 1989, The Lion King is not far from coming out, right? So, they, in their uh, arguments, they bring up Solomon Linda, and they bring up Solomon Linda's family. The Richmond organization accused the RCA people of trying to deprive Mr. Linda's family of royalties. And then (laughs) the RCA guys say, okay, well if we win then we'll give a share of the royalties and the uh, further earnings to Solomon's estate. And then the Richmond organization guys come back and say, Actually, the Linda family is entitled to up to half of everything that The Lion Sleeps Tonight gets. Where is this coming from? Uh, They did not care 30 years ago. But now they care because they are still, you know, they're both angling for the same share of the pie that they had had before and are worried about, I mean, they can see it disappearing. So... They just throw the the Linda estate into this, um, I guess, to uh, get the judge on their side, and uh, it kind of worked. Ultimately, what ended up happening was the uh, George David Weiss and, and his crew—they w- were awarded uh, the song. They were awarded the lion sleeps tonight. It's theirs, uh, but. They were also ordered to send 10% of the, uh, the performance royalties to Solomon Linda's estate. Keeping in mind, Solomon, uh, Solomon Linda has been dead for years by now, but his family is still very much alive and still very much in poverty. So, finally, finally, there is somewhat of a happy ending here. For Solomon himself... Not so much. Um, although, you know, the thing with Solomon is he he, th- he didn't know that he was missing out, right? He thought that's how it was supposed to work. He didn't realize really that the song that he had created uh, was not making him rich like it should have been. He didn't realize it was supposed to be making him rich. Um, but as time went by... And as these settlements were settled, uh, people began to catch wind of uh, this situation a bit more. Uh, Very specifically, here's where I do want to give credit. Uh, A journalist by the name of Ryan Malin, uh, who's a South African journalist and musician, so very very appropriate for this. He wrote a feature in Rolling Stone in 2000 that, Uh, is basically the story I just told you. I mean, I'm sort of retelling his work. Um, But that and a uh, BBC documentary and uh, Pete Seeger writing letters to the UN about songwriters' rights and uh, South Africa's Ministry of Arts and Culture, uh, like launching a task force to investigate this, all these things... uh, Sort of convened around the same time, and there was renewed interest in the situation, in the case, in the cases. And now, um, things are indeed looking up for the Linda estate. Solomon Linda's descendants, uh, his surviving family, God bless them. They, believe it or not, folks, they took on the mouse. They sued. The Walt Disney Company, uh, because the Walt Disney Company was making a lot of hay from from Lion King stuff, and they still are, and The Lion Sleeps Tonight is sort of a central uh, focus of... Uh, I don't know, the merchandising of it and obviously it's very uh, wrapped up in all Lion King IP. In the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. In the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps too. I can't hear you buddy, back me up! Whee! So here's the happy ending. Here's here's the the settlement. Now Solomon Linna's estate, uh, they have received payment for all past uses of the Lion Sleeps Tonight, and they are entitled to any future royalties from worldwide use uh, in the future. Uh, the Lion Sleeps Tonight. The song is now. Acknowledged as derivative of Mbuebe uh, and he's acknowledged as a composer, and finally a trust uh, was formed to administer the estate's copyright and to receive on their behalf the payments due from the use of the Lion Sleeps Tonight. Okay, uh, was that too dry? I feel like no. I mean that is the the happy ending actually, and. Uh, it's, it's fascinating because this is the kind of thing that does happen maybe, I mean, maybe a lot more frequently than we would think or hope. And the, uh, like, had there not been, uh, a lot of media attention around this back in the early 2000s, the Linda estate would still be, uh... In abject poverty I'll say it again um, And so It's it's great news That they finally got there uh, But It's Sad And I mean sort of deeply depressing That That was the way things worked For so long that A man who Wrote a 15 note Melody that reverberated around the world, died penniless. That's, I mean, that's not how it ought to work, but it's also very worth, um, I guess, considering that all of the stuff that was happening was legal. I mean, Solomon wasn't, he wasn't cheated, right? He didn't feel like he'd been cheated. He had his 10 shillings. Um, and that was the way things worked. Uh, people made their deals and he just was completely cut out of it. Um, and the rich white men got richer and he died sick and poor. So quite a story. Um, I mean, I hope you have learned something and enjoyed something. I, uh, I, I don't know, and this, this, look, this is not me getting on my soapbox, this is more of just a fireside chat thing here, but there are parts of our culture, um, that are so commonplace and so ingrained that we just, like, don't think about them, because they're just there, uh, and this, I mean, I, I think looking into things like that is just, uh, deeply compelling and also deeply important, like, who made this right? Where did these things come from? And it's, and in this case, it's as simple as a 15 note improvised melody, um, that was made up by a kid in Johannesburg decades ago and has since made millions, tens of millions of dollars for everyone but him. And, uh, I don't know i just i think it's so important to think about and care about who created these things for our enjoyment and if they're getting um their dues so i will chat with all of you same time next week same place tim will be back We are going to do that punk rock one, I swear to you. I swear to you we will. Um, But for now, much like the uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein song from The Sound of Music, so long, farewell.